Well, we're going to continue today in a series called Waiting on the Lord. And uh, most of you are aware that as we've been in this series that it has been a glorious, glorious time where God has been moving and he's literally been changing lives. I, I, I think back over the last four weeks and and, 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 and for those who've been attending, perhaps you're new even during this time, we, we have seen, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the last four weeks, about 40 people make decisions for Christ across thir- services. Listen, you should t- celebrate like crazy. Listen, here's why, here's why uh, a few of you are clapping. Here's why. Because in most churches, they don't get 40 people to make decisions for Christ in a whole year. And yet God started to do this in our church, and we're seeing uh, something, a a spiritual stirring, an awakening take place, a revival and a move of God's Spirit that is taking place in our day. It's exactly as he said it would happen. He said, uh, you know, just a couple of months ago as I was in prayer, he says, this begins now, the move of my Spirit, the life springing forth out of the ashes of experience, this this begins now. And as you know, it's all been in, in concert with the word of God. Isaiah 40, verse 31, you know it. It says, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up on wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Listen to me, church. God didn't give us this verse for smooth sailing. He's saying, no, in the midst of adversity, when things are coming against you, to rip strength from your spirit, I'm going to be there. I'm going to strengthen you. And I've come as the voice and the mouthpiece of God to say this. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're going to overcome. Why? Because God says, I'm deeply committed to renewing your strength. Renewing your strength. That's not made for times of peace, I believe it is in times of war that the wind of God begins to lift us up higher than the conflict, begins to cause us to run in moments when people are paralyzed in fear, causes people to continue to walk in a steadfast manner when others fall away. This is what God is doing in this hour right now. And he told us in this time to focus on four things, the seed of the word of God, the soil of our hearts, the soaking of God's presence. Aren't you glad that the rain eased up a little bit? I believe it's because we're in transition time. We're finally getting to the fourth area this summer. And you're like, thank God. You're grateful. We're so grateful that that sun came out for a few days. So grateful. And something that the Lord spoke to me, you know, and this is this final area that we're focusing on. It is the beauty of the sun, the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. Something the, the Lord began to just reveal to me. He says, he said this to me. He said, you know, the beauty of the S-U-N is fully realized in the presence of rain. It's when there is rain that you understand the full beauty of the physical sun. Why? Because when it's constantly raining and the sun appears, then you understand that those two things actually 
beautifully and harmoniously work together. And I would like to say to you, church, the reason why God has highlighted to us the presence of God is because he wants us to understand the beautiful harmony of the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the beauty of the Son of God. Here's how I describe it. You know, before you have a relationship with God, here's what happens. There is God, the Holy Spirit. You don't know him. The way you experience him at first is like this sudden like urge, this drawing, this realization that there's something missing. It's a miss in your life. There's something that is out of order in your life. And the Holy Spirit, without you knowing him, begins to point toward Jesus. He begins to point toward a Savior. He begins to talk to you about Jesus and promote Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, without you knowing it, is saying, listen, I need to introduce you to Jesus. Jesus is the one that you're missing. And and the Holy Spirit's job is, he says, I want to introduce you to my friend, Jesus. But then when you invite Jesus in your life, the first thing Jesus wants to talk about is Listen, you have got to meet my friend, Holy Spirit. You got to meet him. He goes, you've interacted with him. You just don't know him fully yet. And he says, he says, Jesus says, I, I got to introduce you to him. Not only introduce you, I'm actually going to take you and I am going to fill you and immerse you in him. You're like, What? Yeah, in all four Gospels, it is spoken of Jesus. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All four Gospels. How many of you know that's pretty important? So he says, Holy Spirit introduces you to to Jesus, and this this presence of God actually helps you to to understand the beauty of the Son. And then the the beauty of the Son says, oh, this is why, why you need the presence of the Holy Spirit in a full measure in your life. It's the beautiful relationship, the harmonious relationship. Now, I will say this. Oftentimes, there have been people who say, no, 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 we, we totally want to ignore the work, the power of the Holy Spirit. We're fine with the Son, not so much the presence. You know what happens in the natural when you have the Son and no presence? Drought. You dry up. And I want to tell you, God in this hour is pouring out his spirit. There is an abundance of his presence who is helping us to understand the beauty of Jesus in a greater measure. And I am praying today that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would see the beauty of Jesus as expressed through the lens of the disciple who leaned his head on the chest of Jesus, John. In John chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. All the notes are in the Bible app. You could follow along there as well. John so beautifully describes Jesus. 
And my prayer is that once again, each one of us would see the beauty. Whether or not you are saved or in relationship with God today, I, I, I pray that you would see the beauty of Jesus for the first time. And if you've been walking with God 30, 40, 50 years here today, I pray that you would once more in a fresh and dynamic way see the beauty of Jesus. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I have said, He who comes after me is preferred over me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have received grace, for grace, that means grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, listen, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You need to understand, there is a, a, an intimate connection here between Jesus Christ, between Jesus and the descriptive way John sees him, the word. The word here, it says, full of, he comes, manifests, tabernacles, dwells with us, full of grace and truth. And then he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So who is the word? The word is? Come on, you need to be convinced. Who is the word? The word is? That's right. The word is Jesus. And we're going to look in depth at this, this verse 14 because it's going to help us to understand the beauty of the Son. You see... The beauty of the Son is fully realized in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And here he uses language that says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, Jesus Christ, listen to this, became flesh. Jesus Christ was not always flesh. Jesus was not always flesh. You say, why did he use this terminology? The word became flesh. Here's why. Because of his nature. This is an incredible statement. John is saying, listen, this is an enormous deal. We just read over this. The word became flesh. We just think he's waxing poetic, but he's actually describing, he's describing Jesus. He's like, I want you to get this in full picture. I want you to understand the nature of Jesus. He was saying this. He says, you need to understand that the word Jesus became flesh. And his nature is incredible. Just a few verses earlier in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, the word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. I want you to see what his nature is here. First, his nature is eternal. The nature of Jesus is that he is eternal. He is not one who just simply exists. This in time, uh, you know, some, some 2,000, over, a little over 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. 
He is from what the theologians call the absolute beginning. That means eternity past. It precedes, it, it precedes the creation of this world. He is eternal in the beginning. Where is he? Jesus is in heaven. He is at, he is with God in his eternal abode existing outside of time. You say, why is it important that I bring this up? There are entire movements on the earth that try to de debase who the Son of God is. And I want to tell you, in this hour, we don't need to have faith in an unbiblical Jesus. We need faith in the actual Jesus who is eternal, who is uh, from this place called heaven. He exists way before 2,000 years ago. What's the other part? It says, he was with God and he was God. Now, we're not, we're not polytheistic. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God who has multiplied expressions. I love it. I heard, I was talking to one of my uh, sisters in the Lord today. She says, listen, it's not the Father plus the Son plus the Spirit that would equal three. No, no, no. It's the multiplied effort of God to reach humanity. It's the Father times the Son times the Spirit. Because one times one times one equals one. I was like, girl, you love math. <laughs> I said, but man, that'll preach. You know, and I want you to understand that Jesus is not simply a Jewish man giving biblical precepts. Jesus is God. He's fully divine. And it says, the word became flesh. Listen, listen. Jesus was the active agent in creation. Most of us, when we read the accounts of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we do not see in our heart of hearts Jesus doing the creating, and yet he actually is. This is important. Because then suddenly when you have the proper perspective of of who he is and his actual nature, the fact that that God would come in the flesh? The scripture says he became flesh, and the word dwelt there in the Greek, it's perfect. It's tabernacled. He uses this language because he knows the audience of Jews will immediately connect to this. The audience of Jews know that when God came down on Sinai and, and his presence was beginning to abide with a people that had been delivered from Egypt, Moses erected a place called the tabernacle, called the tent of meeting. And the glory of God would come down and there Moses would meet with God and talk to him as a friend face to face. And it is with that understanding that John says, the beauty of Jesus is that he is the full expression of the manifestation of God on earth with men. There are some verses that, that people avoid because they are attached to certain seasons, like Christmas. Matter of fact, I want to give you permission 
to read all verses regardless of the season. I'm going to even give you permission to watch Christmas movies this month if you want. I mean, after all, Walmart's probably already putting out the stuff. I mean, you should just go ahead and binge. You know, go ahead. Uh, Will Ferrell in tights. Elf. Top five. Just saying. Awesome. Be blessed. Be totally blessed. But I don't want to avoid any scriptures because they're attached to a season like Christmas. Because if you avoid them, you will miss the beauty of the revelation of the Son of God. Like Isaiah 7, 14, 700 years before Christ would manifest on the earth. Because he was always existing in eternity past. Before, it says this. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What is the sign for? It is pointing toward God's love and redemption of all mankind. It says, he, he will give you a sign. This is a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth, give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It's God with us. So when he says, the word becomes flesh, he's saying, oh, God came down and wrapped himself in flesh, and he's choosing to manifest his presence among us through the beautiful expression of the Son of God. Now, if you're going to behold his beauty as they did, you're going to need to see Something that quite possibly was never seen before this moment where the word became flesh. All throughout the the Old Testament, there were many mighty acts, many miracles, parting of the Red Sea, feeding the children of Israel with manna, quail, splits the rock and water flows from the the rock. Many miracles. The sun stands still. But something was revealed in this beautiful moment when the word became flesh. And that is simply this, the humility of God. It was quite possibly revealed like never before. The humility of God gets revealed and it's described in Philippians chapter 2. And it actually is a great uh, way to properly navigate relationships with other people. It says, in your relationships with others, let this same mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Have this same mindset, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. Notice, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I want to focus just a little bit on verse 6. Who being in the very nature God, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, you're, if you uh, carry only the King James, you, you would see uh, it says, he did not consider equality with God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Another, probably a, a more accurate kind of way of understanding this, he says he did not think 
of equality with God, something to be grasped and held on to. But he says, I'm not going to use that to my advantage. I'm going to display my humility, come in flesh, and become obedient even to death. By the way, death was not in the existence of God. It is when he steps into our world, takes on flesh, that he submitted himself to something that he never deserved. Notice what he says next. He says, we beheld his glory. Now, in our Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, we hear glory, and we're thinking, oh, man, the cloud. Maybe the glory is, he had beams of light shining. By the way, that did happen once, the Mount of Transfiguration. But he did not walk around with these shafts of light shining. By the way, there was nothing of his countenance that was a, a super attractive. And so there, there, he, was, he just comes in humility. And yet John says, we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. What is he saying? We saw his worth. And I believe in this moment, church, today, that God is opening the eyes of the church to once again see the worth of Jesus. I want to promote to you a Jesus which you can count on. You need to live in real relationship with the real Jesus. Not some false one you've designed in your head. Not one that you have made to fit your own thinking. You need to understand his worth today, and I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see the beauty of the Son in a fresh way. It's expressed in two characteristics in verse 14. It says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Notice these two, full of grace and truth. The beauty of the Son is first revealed full of of grace. You need to write, you need to get this in your heart. If you're not writing it down, I mean, write it on your heart. He was full of grace. This word grace is charis. It's God's undeserved favor and loving kindness. He is full of grace. There is an idea within theology uh, that anytime someone builds a box of thinking, and they think they have God totally figured out. It's equilatos. He overflows the box. He supersedes the limited exp explanation of who he is that we can, we can muster. So suddenly we say, oh yeah, we got God figured out. We got the box. God's like, I'm climbing out of the box. I don't fit in the box. So God is exceptionally more than you can ever think or imagine, and yet we see him here full of grace. By the way, you know something's full when it's overflowing. That's when you know it's full. If it's not overflowing, it might, have, it might be almost full. You know it's full when it's overflowing. Now, 
This word grace, it means God's undeserving favor and loving kindness. And let me make it clear today, our whole relationship with God today is founded on this truth of his grace. Ephesians 2, we'll begin in verse 3. I just want to read you these verses. That ought to cause your heart to come alive. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though when we were dead in our trespasses and our transgressions. And it's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order, listen to these words, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is God's undeserved favor given to us out of his loving kindness, not based upon what we have done, but based upon for on what he has done for us. Let me make it to you very, very clear for everyone today. We are saved by grace. We're healed by grace. We're kept by grace. We're filled by grace. We're led by grace. We're renewed by grace. We're redeemed by grace. We're rescued by grace. And one day we'll be raptured by grace. We are who we are because of the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And he's full of grace. But he's not only full of grace because grace has a necessary partner. He's full of truth. He's full of grace and truth. This word in the Greek is aletheia. It literally means this, reality. Reality. By the way, you're watching something on TV. It carries a title, reality. Don't believe it. It's scripted. There's no way there are that many stupid people on the planet. They don't exist. A producer dreamed it up, wrote a script, and said, are you dumb enough to do this if we pay you? And they said, yes. We'll do it all for fame and money. It's not reality. Truth is reality. And Jesus came in the declaration of the fullness of truth. What, what does that include? That fullness of truth means a revelation of the reality of who God is and his nature. He comes with the reality that God is holy and that he, is, he, he dwells in an unapproachable light and that God must not be handled carelessly. He comes with this full revelation 
And then he not only reveals all of the characteristics of God fully because Jesus Christ is perfect theology, he also reveals the our fallen nature. It's man's true condition. He reveals sin. I don't know if you're like most people. Most people do not want to confront problems. They're just like, uh, uh. Let's just ignore it, smile, and pretend it's not there. This isn't Jesus. Remember the story? It's going up to the Temple Mount, the very place people are supposed to be having an encounter with God. Here are these money changers outside. They see an opportunity to really put the twist to the people who want to work God, uh, worship God because they, they, they couldn't bring their sacrifices from a long distance. So what they would do is say, man, you need, you need to come and you need to trade in your money. And, oh, that's, that's going to cost you a lot of money. And, then, and some were, were charging these in, incredible amounts for the sacrifices necessary to meet with God. And, and that, that wasn't good. And Jesus comes and he sees these people that were being tolerated, this sin that was being tolerated. And you know what he does in the presence of that sin? He turns over the tables and everybody is stunned. What authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says this, it's the authority of the word of God. He says, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Let me just give you a little aside. For those of you who are born again, uh, God changed addresses. His address used to be, you know, John 316 Way, Jerusalem. <laughs> Lived in that one house. But when Jesus cried out from the cross, he tore the veil, said, I'm moving out. On the day of Pentecost, he says, I'm going to own homes everywhere across the world. All who place faith in me, and we became the house of God. Now listen to me. The purpose of the house never changed. Only the address. And the purpose of the, our house as we, as the temple of God, is this. My house shall be a house of prayer. A house that lives to intercede. To see the kingdom of heaven come down to earth. To see this God who is great and beyond our thinking. His love which is beyond our knowing and yet we're meant to pursue it. That God we will intercede and we will see his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My house shall be called, called a house of prayer. And let me give you this warning. Your prayerless life is making you a thief. Don't live a life simply living on the prayer lives of someone else and miss your assignment, church of God. He's full of truth. Jesus never avoided the lost, by the way. But he never, uh, he never avoided what they lacked. Do you remember his interaction with the young rich ruler? I love this story. 
Because if the interaction with the young rich ruler were today, boy, would we ever be happy. The modern church would be so happy, especially with this first verse. It says, now as he was going out on the road, uh, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Boy, at this point, we just start singing, just as I am without. What? We're like, this is it. This is the moment. Yes, it's everything. Jesus, not so much. Jesus is like, stop playing. I'm full of grace, but full of truth. He says, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. By the way, you got the revelation. I am God. He says, you know the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now notice this, grace and truth together. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, full of grace, full of loving kindness, undeserved favor, and full of truth, says one thing you lack. Go your way and sell whatever you have and give to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And this young rich ruler goes away sad because he had great possessions. Now, the good news of this story is that most theologians think he's one, thinks he's one of two people. My personal belief is that this young rich ruler has a name that you will recognize, Nicodemus. He was a young rich ruler. He was very much... Uh, uh, one who was of great respect. He actually comes to Jesus in John 3, mentioned again, saying, what is this? You're saying, be born again. How can we do this? He says, you're the teacher of Israel. You should know these things. And I believe he got born again somewhere in the process. Here's why. Because at Calvary, at the death of Christ, there are two men that show up. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, uh, of Arimathea the owner of the tomb that would be borrowed and Nicodemus. The other disciples don't show up. He shows up. Not to stand in judgment, but to carefully place the body of the one who spoke to him. I believe that's who it was. Whether it was or not, you need to know that Jesus had a moment full of grace and truth. We cannot avoid sin issues in people's lives when we're ministering to people. You can't just look the other way. What if they slip into eternity? How was your evangelism strategy working out then? Terrible. It's not good. None of us are promised tomorrow. But we come with loving kindness and grace. And we say, this is what's lacking. Jesus did this over and over again. In John 8, uh, in, in verses 10 and 11, there's a woman caught in adultery. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, Lord, there are none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. There is grace. Here is truth. Go and sin no more. He's saying, listen, I am going to be full of grace, but full of truth. 
There's one man that got delivered. He gets delivered. He says, go and sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. Full of grace, deliverance, truth. And when he's ministering to Zacchaeus, this one who's, he's abdicated his role as, a, as, a, as one who is a son of Abraham. He's abdicated that role. He's collecting taxes for Rome. He, you know, he, he didn't, Jesus announces to him after he says, I'm giving half of all I own to the poor and the men. If I stole anything, I'm going to restore it multiplied times. And then Jesus says in response, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You have to understand the weightiness of that statement. Listen, in Israel, still to this day, when you are a Jew, there is not one thought within the whole of the population of I am in the kingdom of God or I am attached to God in covenant relationship or I'm not. When you're a Jew, you're just presumed in. There's no thought that you could be possibly lost. But here comes one called teacher, rabbi, who we know to be God, saying, no, my role is to come find those who are lost, and they have no idea they're lost. Because I'm full of truth. You think you're fine. You're not. Full of grace. I'm the one that can show you God's undeserved favor and loving kindness, but I'm not going to do it apart from being full of truth. Isaiah 59 describes it very well. The Lord's arm is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy, that he cannot hear, but your iniquities, listen to this, have separated you from your God, and your sins have what? Hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Notice it does not say, God has hidden his face from you. He says, your sins have hidden God's face from you. He's not hiding your sins are in the way. Your sin is in the way. And this is that part of the, 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 the part of sometimes the ministry of Jesus that people just want to reject. I want the full of grace part, but this truth part, ah, that makes me uncomfortable. We need to be uncomfortable. I am not, uh, I, I'm actually totally certain that if the, the glorified Christ that exists at the right hand of the Father manifested here, most of you would run from this building. Some of us, in a righteous response, would hit the deck and get as low as we could. If you're the kind of uh, person that wears the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> We're not flying together. I'm not getting on a train with you. You terrify me. <laughs> you, 
Dad's, he's not your homeboy. You need to rid yourself of such a prideful thought and allow the Jesus who is full of grace and truth, allow him to come to you and deal what's been separating you from the intimacy that Jesus had with the Father from the very beginning. Because Jesus was full of grace and full of truth, listen to this, because he was full of grace and full of truth, he recognized you can't help yourself. You can't do it. I'm full of grace and full of truth. Because of those two things, he said, I must embrace the cross. Because the longing of God is to give the intimacy between the Father and the Son. Read the prayer, the high priestly prayer of John 17, where where Jesus is crying out for that kind of unity. Not only for the, the Father and the Son, but the Father and all those who would believe in the Son. He's saying, listen, I know your our heart for humanity is that they would have restored intimacy. And it will only become only be a reality when grace is offered and justice is satisfied for the truth about sin. Did you know there is no intimacy without justice? Hebrews tells us that it says that many things are purified, they are purified with blood. And Hebrews 9.22 says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So he's saying, listen, God isn't just going to come to us and say, oh, do better next time. No, 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 that's not the way that he is dealing with sin. That is not the way that you will get restored intimacy with God. It is him saying, no, 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 I will shed my blood so that you can be thoroughly cleansed. I want to read this to you as we finish Romans 5, 6 through 11. It says, you see at just the right time. When we were, notice these words, powerless, powerless. Why powerless? Because you were dead, and dead people can't help themselves. When we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love He demonstrates the grace that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now notice this. Since we have now been justified by his blood, that justice was satisfied by his death, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life not only is this so but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ though we have 
now received reconciliation. Here's what I want you to see. The beauty of the Son is that he comes full of grace, full of truth, and he says, I'll pay the price. I will justify you. Listen, do you know what justify means? This is the easy way to remember this. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. Oh, man. Do you understand the intimacy that comes between a God and one who is washed in the blood of the Lamb? The presence that manifests, the power that comes, the life that surges to one who has been ministered to, full of grace, full of truth, and says they can't help themselves. I will justify them in my own blood and reveal my beauty. And they'll be reconciled to that intimacy. That I had with the Father in eternity past and now am giving to those who place faith in what I've done for them. My assignment here today is this. To echo the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, for we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, implore you, I implore you, Pastor Otis, on behalf of heaven, as a representative, as one with the full backing of heaven, I implore every one of you, be reconciled to God. There stands before you an open door and a Savior with open arms. He will wash you, cleanse you, give you undeserved favor fill you with his spirit and you will experience the intimacy with God you were meant for not experienced since the garden except with redeemed humanity why why would I implore you the next verse for he made him Jesus who knew no sin he never sinned to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of 